to this morning, would you go ahead and open up to the book of First John, and we're going to be in chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one in the pew rack in front of you, and if you're going to use that, I'll give you a shortcut. You'll find First John chapter 5 on page 1085. So I'm going to encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open and maybe take a few notes this morning. Today is our 15th and final Sunday in 1 John. We've covered a lot of ground in our study of this incredible, robust, encouraging book of the Bible. Let's take a quick trip down memory lane together. What have we seen and learned through our study of 1 John? Well, this letter from John was prompted by a split in the church. He told us in chapter 2 about a group of people who were rejecting the unique role of Jesus in our salvation. And we learned a lot about that group, that anti-Jesus group throughout John's letter. He told us in chapter 1 verse 6 that they claimed to have fellowship with God, but they walked in darkness. And in chapter 1 verse 8, he said that they claimed to have no sin, but they deceived themselves. In chapter 2, verse 4, they claimed to know God without keeping his commands. In chapter 2, verse 9, they claimed to be in the light, but they hate those who are children of God. In chapter 2, verse 15, these people are lovers of the world. And in chapter 2, verse 18, he uses the word antichrist to describe who they are and the life that they lead. So this is the group that left John's church. And that group's departure... Uh, along with their anti-Jesus message, left the remaining church in real spiritual and emotional turmoil. And as a result, John's tone throughout this letter is largely gentle and pastoral. Um, I, I thought John would do a lot more combat with false teachings in this letter, but he doesn't. He's a shepherd caring for his wounded people. And so he repeatedly refers to the readers of this letter as dear children. It's a term of affection. And then in chapter 2, you remember, he wrote a poem to encourage the church. It's the only written poem, original poem to John that we have. Um, his message to the church is that their faith in Jesus is not misguided. Faith in Jesus is absolutely essential to knowing God. Jesus is the one who died to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus is the one who continues to help believers in their battle against sin. John said in chapter 2, verse 1, that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then in chapter 1, verse 9, he said, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous and will forgive us of all of them. And so we have this advocate and this encouragement and this protection through our faith in Christ. And if I were to ask you, what were John's two main statements? What are the two things he says over and over and over again in this letter? I really think you could land this one. Uh, first of all, he tells us, believe in Jesus. He is consumed with this thought. We must believe on Christ for our salvation. And the second thing he tells us to do is to love one another. Over and over again, he tells us, because he knows we're prone to forget, and he knows we think it might be idealistic, and he wants us to get this message in our heads and in our hearts that we would believe in Christ and that we would love each other. And so as he bangs that drum over and over again, you can see through the progression of the letter, John instilling confidence in his reader. 
I see a decided shift in tone from the start of the letter to the end. The start of the letter, very warm, gentle, reassuring, kind of like John saying, it's going to be okay, you're going to make it. But by the time we get to the end of the letter, reassurances are done, and now it's time for confidence. And he begins to repeat over and over again, here's what we know. We know these things. We came into the letter, there's a lot of things we didn't know. But here at the end of this letter, there's a lot of things we do know, and it all flows through Jesus Christ. So here at the end of the letter, John's done giving instructions. He's done with all of his warnings and all of his reassurances. He's said all of that. And it's time to send the church into the world to act in the confidence of their faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't just end the letter saying it's going to be okay. He turns the church to the world and he says, go get them. It's time to roll. And that's how the letter closes today for us. What does it look like when our confidence or our assurance in Christ is solid and secure? What does it look like in our daily lives? Whenever we know that we have life in the Son, that's what John calls us to today, is a particular way of living. And he highlights three actions that the confident Christian takes in their lives. So I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 14. This is the confidence we have before Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of Him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. John does not end on an easy passage. This is really tricky material to make sense of uh, and to apply to our lives. But one thing that always helps me when I'm studying the Bible is looking for the structure of the passage that I'm looking at. And uh, any particular passage in the Bible can have more than one structure, and that's true of this passage we're studying today. You could structure it in a two-part way. You could just split it from verses 14 to 17 and say this is about prayer. And then verses 18 to 21, this is about knowledge because John repeatedly says, we know, we know, we know. So you could structure it that way. That's a very common way to structure this passage. You could just structure it according to all of the we know statements. Start at verse 13, and you can roll right through these five or six statements of things that we know because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That would be a faithful way to structure this also. I'm going to do it a little bit different this morning uh, because I've really wrestled with this. This is where it makes sense for me. Uh, I see in this passage three statements that alternate between a call to action and a spotlight on the activity 
of the evil one. So let me show you, we'll put it on the screen here, uh, just so you can kind of see how I see this passage. Uh, We've got three different sections that are composed of alternating ideas. So verses 14 and 15, we're told to pray. That's the action that people who follow Jesus should do. We're to pray. And then he talks about a specific type of prayer. It's prayer for a fellow believer who's lost in sin or who's struggling with sin. So there's that spotlight on the activity of the evil one. Pray because there are brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin. Next, in verse 18, uh, John speaks of the protection we have from God. Here's this action we have. It's an action that's done for us. And then in verse 19, he says you need that protection because here's the spotlight on the evil one. There's the, the world is under the sway of the devil. right? Action, spotlight. Third and finally, verse 20, we know that we belong to the true one, that Jesus is God in eternal life. And then he ends, verse 21, by telling us to stay away from idols. So call to action, spotlight on evil. Call to action, spotlight on evil. That alternates three different times. That's how I see it. That's how we're going to approach it this morning. And this informs the actions that God's children undertake. When our confidence is in Christ, when we've been reassured that we belong to him, when we've been reassured that there's a covering for our sin, when we have this assurance in us, it results in a different way of living. So what's the action that accompanies us? What's the action John calls us to here at the end of his letter? The first one is this, God's people pray. In verses 14 to 17, God's people pray. So verse 14 John says this, he says, this is the confidence we have before him. And who's the him? Well, the him is God the Father. This is the confidence we have before God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, this is the second time in the letter John's made a statement like this. It's a truth that he's learned from Jesus. If we ask anything according to the will of God, God hears us. When he says God hears us, he means God hears us and God answers When we pray in line with the will of God, God always answers yes to that prayer. Now, what does it mean to pray according to the will of God? Well, what it means is that the revealed will of God becomes the vocabulary of our praying. We find the words for our praying from God's revealed will. How do we know God's revealed will? It's in His Word, not from the preacher. Not from anyone who's selling a book or has a TV program. God's revealed will comes from his word alone. And when we pray, when we bring our prayers in alignment with the things that God has said, he wants, he wills, he's decreed, God hears that prayer and God always answers yes to this. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. Prayer is not where we create God's will for him to follow. Prayer doesn't give God marching orders. We can use all the prayer formulas and the fancy words and the scrunchy faces that we want, but we cannot make God do the things we want him to do. God does what God wants and what he's willed. And so since we have his will in his word, this needs to be the content of our praying. And if I'm going to pray God's will, I need to know what he said. I, I need to spend time listening to his voice in his word. Now, here's the, the truth about prayer. We're, we're going to face a lot of situations in our lives that we're going to pray about in which we don't know the will of God. 
we don't know his circumstantial will. Although we'll know his revealed will, we may not know his circumstantial will. And so in those situations, it doesn't mean we don't pray for those things. It just means we pray humbly and we come before the Lord open-handed. And what we claim, what we rest on, is the compassionate, loving character of our God. That even though we don't know the outcome, we don't know what comes next, we know He does, and He's loving and kind, and He will not disappoint us. He'll see us through all the way. So there's times when we pray when we don't know God's will in a given situation. There's times when we pray and God's will does not match our will. That's a hard place to be in. But our example for how to pray in that instance is Jesus himself. On the night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what Jesus prayed there? Hey, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The will of God becomes the vocabulary of our praying. And so that begs the question for us, what has God willed? What has he said he wants? Let me show you just a few things that God has willed for his children. In Matthew 6, he says, don't worry. And in Psalm 56, he says, don't fear. And in Matthew 28, it's his will that you would know you're not alone. In Ephesians 5, it's his will that you would love your spouse. In Matthew 5, it's his will that you would be merciful. In 1 John 3, 23, you should love your faith family. This is God's will. In Matthew 28, 19, it's God's will that you would share the gospel. In Revelation 7, 9, it's God's will that the nations would hear the gospel. And these are just a few of about a bajillion different things God has spoken to in his word. God's will is not a mystery. God's will is not hidden and secret and only a select few get to know it. It's right here in these pages when we open it and sit with the Lord in his word. Sometimes I find, maybe you, you find this also in your prayer life, my prayer life gets lazy. I find that I pray the same things in the same way. I fall into these ruts and repetitions over and over again. And for me, it kind of looks like this. I'll see a problem in my life or someone's life. I'll diagnose it. I'll, I'll have a prescription and I'll, I'll carry all of that to God. I've done the heavy lifting. God, I've, I've vetted the situation. <laughs> I know what's wrong, and I know what will fix it. And here's what I need you to do in Jesus' name, amen. I fall into this rut of laziness and presumption, and I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to talk to God like, like he's the wish giver in the sky. And when I see that in myself, when you see that in yourself, here's what we need to do. We've got to go back to the word of God. We've got to sit with God's word open. We have to hear his voice, align our hearts with his heart, and let that become the content of our praying. Now, John calls us to pray. This is what God's people do. But he goes on to call us to a specific kind of prayer. And in verses 16 and 17, this is, it's, it's one of the most challenging passages of Scripture in the New Testament, certainly in the book of 1 John. But I think I've got a way for us to navigate through it and to make sense, okay? Look at what John says in verse 16. He says, If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. So if you see a fellow believer sinning, pray for that person, God, it's in God's will for that person to be restored. He will give life to them. Uh, that's to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. 
All right, this is where it gets weird. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. What is John talking about here? Uh, I, I paid high money to get this uh, graphic created. I want to show it to you, and I think it will help us make sense of this passage, perhaps. We've got uh, a person. So when I say high, big money, I did this. So there you go. We, John tells us to pray for a specific person. On the left side is the, is the positive expression of John's instruction. We are to pray for believers, believers who are in sin, and John characterizes that sin as a sin that does not lead to death. So our first response when we see someone in sin, a brother or sister, is to pray. God, this is your child. This is my brother or sister. I need you to move and act on their hearts. So that's what we're to do. Here's the question we would ask. What is the sin that doesn't lead to death? That is the sin that every, the types of sin that every Christian deals with. Christians are not sinless people. We don't live sinlessly perfect lives. And that's why in this letter we've we've highlighted over and over again, chapter 2, verse 1, when we sin, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he hears and forgives. We've repeated those over and over because we don't live sinlessly perfect lives. But this is what Christ does for us and how Jesus holds us. We remain in him. He remains in us. He holds us through all of that sin. We have a covering and protection for it. So that's the sin that doesn't lead to death. If you're trying to think, okay, here's, I'm going to list, here's the, here's the five sins that will kill you spiritually. I think you're way off base on that. Christ holds his children. Sometimes children of God make hor- horrible mistakes. They commit horrible, willful sin. And I'm not the judge of anyone's soul. I'm not going to tell you you sin and you're okay or you're sin and you're not okay. I just know this, Christ holds us all the way through. But then he tells us this. He says, there is a sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying pray about that one. Who is it that commits the sin that leads to death? Is that a Christian? Can a Christian commit a sin so heinous that they would forfeit their salvation? They were truly saved, they commit the sin, and now they are no longer saved. Scripture does not teach this to be the case. Uh, It will show us that either we are truly his children and God carries us through, leads us in repentance and sanctification and all these things, or sin in our lives might reveal that we were never truly his children to begin with. In trying to make sense of it in this passage specifically, I think it's important that we interpret it in light of the book of 1 John. In 1 John, what is the sin that leads to death? The sin that leads to death is the rejection of Jesus Christ. And who in 1 John has committed that sin? It's not believers, but rather it's counterfeit believers, those who are part of that anti-Jesus crowd. The people he talked about back in chapter 2 who split the church, who've been wooing people out of light into darkness, those who are called uh, in chapter 3 children of the devil, chapter 3 verse 10, those are counterfeits. They aren't believers who've lost their salvation, though they were in the church and among the believers, 
they themselves were counterfeits because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. And so John says, I'm not saying pray about that. Here's the question we would ask then. John, why would we not pray for those who are rejecting Jesus? I've got a, a couple of answers that I, I think can help us navigate that. First of all, it could be that John is telling us not to pray the same prayer for the counterfeit that we would pray for the believer. For the believer, we're praying a prayer of restoration or reconciliation. But for the counterfeit, we would not pray restoration. They can't be restored because they never had life to begin with. We would pray for rescue, for salvation, for that one. So that's one way to approach this verse. But another thought is this. There's a real-life example of a situation similar to this in Paul's letter to 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, around verse 20, Paul talks about two men in the church named Hymenaeus and Alexander. And they are guilty of the same sin that this anti-Jesus crowd in 1 John is guilty of. They are rejecting Jesus and corrupting the gospel. And in 1 Timothy 1.20, here's how Paul says that he's handled Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, I have handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So the method of the first century church was that if a person insisted on teaching a blasphemous message or living a satanic anti-Jesus life, then the church would release that person to the world in the hopes that that person would one day return to Christ, come to faith in Jesus Christ, accept Christ as their Savior. In this case, I don't think John is telling us to give up on these people, but he's telling us God is going to handle it and he will handle it right. So is it a sin then to pray for people who are on the counterfeit side of this chart? No, it's not a sin to pray for people ever. This is what God's people do. Um, But in our praying, we know that God is in control. God knows this person. No one loves them more than God does. And though it may be a challenging prayer, a lifelong prayer that we may not see fulfilled in our lives, still we know that nothing is impossible with God. I just think if the Apostle Paul can be rescued on the road to Damascus, Hymenaeus and Alexander can, anyone can, that there's salvation for all those who would come to faith in Christ. So what does the Christian do? What's the action that comes with our confidence in Christ? Well, we pray, and we pray specifically for the restoration of fellow believers so that they would be restored and God would be glorified. And in this, the enemy doesn't win He takes jabs at the church. He infiltrates. He tempts. He attempts to destroy. But he doesn't win because God's children pray for each other. We have the kinds of relationships where we know each other well enough to know if we're struggling in sin or not. And we're not busybodies. We're not being nosy. We're not gossiping. We're not slandering. But we are carrying one another before the throne of grace, praying, God, restore life your child, my brother, my sister. That's what God's people do. We pray. There's a second action that John calls us to here at the end of his letter, and it's this. God's people are protected from evil. So this protection is something that's passive on our part, meaning God is the one who protects us. We don't protect ourselves. But that protection enables us to live in such a way as to make Christ known among the people we live with. So in verse 18... John says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not sin. 
wait just a minute, John. You just told us that if a believer sins, we're to pray for them. And now you tell us in verse 18 that a believer can't sin. Which one is it? When he says a believer doesn't sin, he means we're not committing that sin that leads to death. Do we sin? Yes. But when we do, we have an advocate and we have protection. We have Jesus Christ who hears our sin, who, or our confession, and who forgives us. So we have, it's as if we are so protected in Christ, it is as if we do not sin. So John goes on to say that the one born of God is kept by God and the evil one does not touch him. Now, why is it that the believer would need protection? Well, the reason is because, according to verse 19, we live in a world that's under the sway of the evil one. Or in other words, it's the world is held in subjection by the devil. I had a great conversation with one of our church members, growth group leaders, the other day. And he told me that his growth group cracked the code of verse 19 by going to Matthew chapter 4 and looking at the temptation of Jesus. And I want you to see how that scene played out. In Matthew chapter 4, it says, Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to Jesus, I'll give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world as if Satan owned them or had possession of them. And when he offered those to Jesus, Jesus didn't say, you liar, you don't possess all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus accepted it as true because it is true in a temporary sense that this world is under the sway. It is in the grip of the evil one. It's true. It's temporarily true. But it's true. And so that temptation to Jesus was Satan offering what he held in his grasp. And so it is that when we step out of the church and step into the world, we're stepping into enemy territory. But in this world of sin and sorrow, God's children have God's protection. John says the evil one does not touch the believer. Is that a promise that bad things will never happen to Christians? No, that's not what it is. But perhaps we can understand it in a few different ways. First of all, by faith in Christ, we are protected totally and forever from hell. And in that sense, the evil one cannot touch the child of God. Another way to understand what John has said is that when we live in line with God's commands, we avoid so much evil that we might otherwise bring on ourselves. So obedience is God's method of protection. We, we don't have some supernatural force field, wah, 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 just, you know, and, and these bad things are just reflecting off of us. When I walk in line with the will of God, I walk in the boundaries of his protection. And when I do that, the evil one cannot touch the child of God. Another way to think about this line from John is, look, we have no idea the evil that God keeps us from on a daily basis. We have no idea the ways in which he keeps evil at bay in our world and in our lives. Look at the headlines. Look at the world. There's plenty for us to be upset about and to groan about. 
But we have no idea what it would be were it not for the restraining hand of God. And the final way to think about what John has said here is that John is saying that the evil one, he holds on to the world, but he cannot get a grip on the child of God. You're slippery to him. He can't touch you. He can't hold you. You're not under his subjection or under his domain. In essence, when John is speaking this to us, saying the evil one can't touch us, this is John's Psalm 23 moment. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's the world, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You set a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Look, the evil one has struck the church many times and in many different ways. And the Bible says we have not yet seen the worst of it. However, he doesn't win, and he can't win because the Lord is your protector. What if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? Man, this, John is speaking to the condition of your soul as well here. Yes, you enjoy protection in a general sense. There's, there's a way in which God gives a general grace to the world. You have food to eat. You have clothes to wear. Uh, you, have, you may have good health. These are God's general grace to you. But apart from Jesus Christ, you live within the grasp of the evil one. But there's freedom for you. There's life for you in Jesus Christ. And that's what we've heard over and over is this invitation to turn our lives to the one who died in our place for our sin. No one else could do what Jesus has done. He alone is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And so when he died on the cross, he died in your place for your sin. And when we put our faith in him, the one who died and rose again, we're forgiven, we're made new, we're given life, we're brought out of darkness and into the light. We're taken from the sway of evil to the embrace of the Holy One. We're God's children forever and ever. You have to hear that invitation today, and you have to say yes to Jesus Christ. Talk to me after the service if you want to know more about it. It could be that this is the day that eternal life becomes yours through faith in Him. So what do Christians do? What's the action he calls us to quickly? He calls us to pray. He calls us to act in this protection we have from the Father. Third and finally, God's people persevere in the truth. So John closes his letter with statements of things that we know. And uh, here's just a quick little list of the things we know here at the end of 1 John. If we go back to verse 13, a verse that we studied last week, we know we have eternal life. We know he hears whatever we ask in verse 14. We know those born of God do not sin in verse 18. We know we are of God in verse 19. We know the Son of God has come in verse 20. And we know the true one in verse 20. We know, we know, we know, we know over and over again. There's no place for this kind of doubt in the family of faith. You, we finish John's letter with confident assurance in the things that we know to be true because of Jesus Christ. When the letter started, a lot of things we didn't know. When the letter ends, here's a whole list of the things that we know, and we know these things because they've been given to us by the Son of God. That's what he tells us in verse 20. We didn't discover this stuff on our own, but the Son of God has given us this truth. How? How has Jesus delivered truth to you? He's delivered truth to you through the apostolic message, through his word given to us through the apostles. 
So we know the true one because we know God and we know eternal life. So then comes the most abrupt ending to a letter ever. Look at verse 21. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Boom, that's the end of it. No sweet affection. I love you. Here's another poem for you. It's, it gets cut quickly. So from our reading, modern-day readers, we look at that, we see the abruptness of it. We think, that's kind of odd. Maybe there's more to the letter and it just got lost somewhere in antiquity. That's a guess, but what if that's not true? What if this is the actual end of the letter? What are we to make of it? Well, John's original audience would not have been taken back by this, I don't think. I think they would have seen this punchline as a powerful ending that demands a response. In a sense, John has been addressing idolatry throughout the letter. He just hasn't done it by name. You see, idolatry doesn't always come in the form of shiny statues or gods with names and human likeness. The idolatry that John addresses is the kind we are accustomed to. It's idolatry of a thing without some sort of God to represent it. In chapter 2, verse 16, he describes it this way. He says, idolatry is all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, should Satan come to attack you or should Satan come to offer you all the kingdoms of the world? The question before you at the end of 1 John is this, who will you serve? Will you serve the one true God or or idols who represent only lies and darkness and death? We know that the one who has the Son has life. And so God's children will abide in Christ and He abides in us. And that's how we persevere in the truth through everything the world promises and everything the world takes. You know these things in Christ, but there's still the allure of idols, of the flesh, of our egos, of sins of all kind. And so we are to be the kind of people who hold fast to God as he holds on to us. Did you know that there is a miracle in the local church? Every gospel-believing church possesses a miracle. In a world full of fear and brokenness, the miracle is that there is a group of people who actually lives by the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment faithfulness is the miracle of the confessing church in every generation of Christianity. That there's actually a little group of people here in a world under the sway of the evil one, facing trials and pressures of all kinds, with no cultural incentive to walk with Jesus Christ, and yet we say the one who has the Son has life. I know the true one, and he is Jesus Christ. That, my friend, is a miracle of God, that you would live that way, that we would live that way. We are those people, and we hold to this truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we profess to the world around us that God has loved them through the gift of his Son. So John closes his letter with this call to action. And that action involves prayer, and it involves God's protection, and it involves this perseverance in the truth of Christ. Prayer, protection, perseverance. Easy to remember here at the end of John. And so it asks questions of us then. Who do you need to be praying for? 
who needs you to be praying for them? What sin do you need to turn from and, and find shelter from in God's protection? What worldly thing is trying to woo you away from God? Brothers and sisters, do not throw yourselves into valleys of death when God has paths of righteousness ahead of you. First John ends not with a finish line, not with a checkered flag. It ends with a starting line, with a green flag. We get to the end of this letter, and it's not time to stop, but rather it's time to go. It's as if John takes us, and he turns us from the sanctuary out to the world, and he says, all right, buckle up. It's time to go. You've got work to do. You're going into a world that seems scary, but remember, God hears you. God protects you. God holds you fast in the truth of Christ, so keep your heart on God no matter what. John might even whisper a few words from a well-known hymn in your ear, something like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. So how are you going to take ground back from the enemy in the week ahead? Christian, how will you live so that the gates of hell do not prevail? The tools at your disposal are the things that God has given us, like prayer and the gospel and love and joy and holiness and care and so much more. And now that the letter has ended, it is time for your race to start. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, that's the end of the book of 1 John. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of this letter to us and for the time that we've had to meditate in it. And I'm so grateful that even here at the end, it's not a message that we can just mail in, but we have to really wrestle with the meaning of these things. But God, I pray that you would give us the confidence of the risen Christ as we look at the world in front of us. Make us dangerous for the sake of your kingdom. Not that we would be conquerors of people, but that we would overcome the evil one by our faith in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we would rescue men and women and boys and girls from the sway of the enemy so that your throne would be surrounded by people from every tribe and nation and tongue and language and that you would be glorified by your children, by your church forever and ever. God, thank you for the call to this holy action you've put on our lives. God, help us to hold fast to our confession that Jesus Christ is your son, that in him is life. God, I pray that you would rally us to prayer and that we would believe in it. Rally us to your word that we would know what to pray. Father, we praise you for the protection we have in Jesus Christ. So God, make us potent and dangerous for the sake of your kingdom. God, this week, may we take back ground for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.